You're listening to Second Stories, created and produced by Second Story, with me, Abigail Brocker, as your host. Second Story is a nonprofit based in Northern Virginia, working to provide safe havens and opportunities to grow and thrive to youth in crisis and their families. We help youth experiencing homelessness or another crisis step away from their first story, one often marked by abuse, hardship, and crisis, and write their own second story, full of hope and promise. It was a normal day, or so Kelsey thought. She woke up in the home she shared with her boyfriend, but she never could have imagined what the day had in store for her, or this strange journey, as she understates, that came afterward. Kelsey's story has some of the lowest lows we've heard yet, as well as one of the most relatable closings. And it's made all the more affecting by the way she's able to reflect on her situation and the situations of other youth like her. We finish our time together talking about homelessness, Second Story's work, and what goes unnoticed and unsaid about youth in crisis. And it's a conversation you can't afford to miss with someone who knows all too deeply what she's talking about. A couple of quick notes about this episode. First, Kelsey's story includes an episode of disturbing violence. If this is especially troubling for you, you may want to sit this one out. And second, due to some technical issues, the sound quality of Kelsey's audio isn't quite what you're used to hearing from our podcast. But this conversation was so helpful, and we believe so important, that we still wanted to share it with you and ask you to consider listening a bit more carefully, a bit more attentively, bearing with our audio to hear all that she has to say. Okay, let's get listening. Here is Kelsey's story. Kelsey, thank you so much for doing this and for being willing to talk to us. It's been fun to reconnect with you after several years outside of the program and hear a little bit more about your story. And I'm really excited that you're willing to share it with us today. So thanks for giving us some of your time. (laughs) You're welcome. No problem. So I want to start off at the beginning. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your family and some of your growing up years, if you have any memories of your childhood that can kind of tell us a little bit more about who you are. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and um, things for the most part in my household were stable. So they're, they're, like we were, I would say maybe upper lower class, maybe middle class. We didn't have any issues with money. I went to a private school most of my life. As stable as my household, was growing up, I always knew that I would leave. I just knew that that wasn't home to me. I knew that there was better opportunities for me other places. And when you stay in a place like that where a lot of people are impoverished, the um, opportunities that you have to grow and develop, not only as a person, but uh, career-wise and financially, are limited. And I had a sister up here. Um, she's maybe like a year and a half, maybe two years older than me. But uh, I decided to enroll in UBC and come up here for college. I just I looked for the most diverse places that you can live, and Washington, D.C. was on the list, and it was great that I had a sister here. 
So uh, I moved. So I came up here and I went to UBC to register for all of my classes. And I've been in communication with them the whole time. Um, and like my housing was squared away, everything was squared away. There was an issue and they wouldn't be able to house me. And my whole plan went down in flames. I had a job in Memphis that was supposed to transfer up here, but that didn't pan out. So now I don't have a job. You know, I'm not going to go to school because I don't have a place to stay. And I'm thinking it's super expensive out here and I don't have a job. Like, how am I going to afford, you know, a grand plus in housing? That is where my weird journey started. So I met a guy and I moved in with him. I did not know as a teenager what mental illness really looked like. And he was definitely, definitely a toxic person, um, multiple diagnosable um, mental issues going on. And I didn't know the signs of it. So I was with somebody who was just very unwell. The relationship was toxic mentally and emotionally um, mm-hmm. and spiritually. It was never physically mm-hmm. abusive. But I would leave. Just my soul would tell me, like, you got to leave this guy. Like, you got to get up out of here. You got to just leave him alone. We were together for seven or eight months. And uh, one morning I woke up and he was standing over me with a knife and a gun. And he was telling me, I'm going to end it all. This is just too much. Like, I don't want to be here anymore. Just really suicidal. And I was like, oh, gosh, just let me call some help. Like, let me call the police. He was like, no, if you touch the phone, I'm going to do it. I really don't know what to do. And he was just having oh my goodness, a mental breakdown to the point that I didn't even recognize him. Who is this person? He looked completely different. He just talked completely different. I, I had no clue at that point like what I was dealing with. He, he was just, the person that I knew was gone. I was going to call for help. And the minute that I started to dial numbers on the phone, uh, he began to shoot himself in his chest, point blank. He shot himself three times. That scene is something that I think I will always remember. Yeah. Um, it just it all happened just really in slow motion. I remember when it happened, me running outside, like panicking, like, oh my gosh, like what do I do next? And I'm calling the cops on the phone and our neighbor was just jogging down the street just nonchalantly and I'm screaming at her like, Help, like he's dead and she's like, Oh my God, oh my God, like, what's happening? And I'm just screaming to her, like, you have to help me. You have to help me. You have to do something. And she's freaking out um, because this is a really quiet neighborhood, like, you know, rich neighborhood. And so she's freaking out. And she walks into the foyer and she sees him on his face for And she is just <laughs> panicking. Of course, anybody would. And so I'm on the phone with the cop um, and she's like, I think we should should apply pressure. And so we're running around the house looking for something just to apply pressure. And I remember she went and got, uh, <laughs> she got like the filthiest thing she could find, which was like the mat that the dog's food and water was on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the worst possible thing she can find. And we just <laughs> put it on his back and like just applied pressure. And we were talking to the cops and we we're just, it was, oh my God, it was just very hectic. Yeah, it's traumatic. Yeah, it was just, it was like a scene from the movie. And at one point she looked at me and she's like, I think I have to go. And I was like, wait, no, please don't leave me. And she's like, I have to go. And she just ran out the door. And I'm like, oh my, oh my. Oh, great. 
<laughs> exactly. I'm like, oh, great. So I'm stuck with him. I don't know if he's dead. I don't know if he's alive. I got the cops on the phone. Like, this is just a horrible mess. And of course, out in Loudoun County, multiple cops pulled up 10 cop cars there. And uh, they airlifted him to Inova. That was the last time I ever spoke to him. That was the last time I ever saw him. That's the last time I I had no communication with him after that. I was taken to the police station and they questioned me. And as crazy as my story sounded, uh, the interrogator uh, believed me. He believed me. And I remember cops calling him and asking him, you know, what's going on. He was like, well, she told me her story and I absolutely believe her. Crazy as all of this sounds, she's telling the truth. That's the day that I became homeless. His mom came over to the house and was pretty much was like, I don't know if my son is going to live or die, but you have to go. When he woke up for the first time ever, he told the truth and said that he did it. Hmm. And so I was off the hook for that. That day, I remember I called into work and was like, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it. Like, this is what happened. And they were like, oh, my goodness, like, if you need time off, let us know. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think I need some time off to process everything. And they were like, okay, you got it. And when I called back and I was like, wait, actually, no, I'll be at work tomorrow because I realized, girl, you have nothing. Mm-hmm. You have nobody. You're an adult. You don't have a place to stay. Like you, you have to go to work. You have no income. So um, the next day I went to work, mm-hmm. and I continued to go to work throughout this whole thing, throughout the whole investigation. But I did realize that it affected me. Yeah, a lot. Well, and you didn't really have a chance to process because you felt obligated to go right back to work because you didn't have any support, too, right? Not just that, but I did realize, and it took me going through therapy to realize that people process trauma differently. Yeah. So the whole time that this happened, I didn't want it at all. I didn't cry. I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. When the cops came to the house, I was speaking to them just like I was, I'm speaking to you now, which kind of you know, it confused people, like, why is she so composed? But I never actually processed what happened. It was just right. survival. At that point, okay, so how am I going to get through this? And so I think not processing it, and I don't know if I was even mm-hmm. able to process what was going on. It it definitely took a toll on my health and definitely my um, state of mind. I would have nightmares, like, mm-hmm. you know, guns going off in my room and I would actually see fire and, you know, like bullets leaving the barrels of guns and I would be at work and I would just freeze up and I would like forget things easily um, at work. And I eventually got let go because I became unreliable. Hmm. It was hard for me to get to work on time. It was hard for me to produce the way that I was supposed to produce. And um, they let me go. Which is all totally normal responses to trauma, but it's really a misunderstood yeah, at this point, it was like the end of August, which was super hot out here that year. Uh, there was a heat wave out here when that happened. I was sleeping in this tiny, tiny, tiny car. I had a, um, what was it, 2003 Ford Mustang, and I had everything <laughs> I owned in that car. Like, I could not mm. even recline my feet back. Mm. So I would just sleep in the driver's seat, and I would look for uh, places at nighttime to sleep that didn't have a lot of light. So, like, the very back of like hotel parking lots where there's no light or um, closed gas stations. I would pull up in their parking lot to go to sleep um, places like that because I didn't want there to be light anywhere because I didn't want um, for people to see that I was in here with all of my stuff. So how long did that last? 
this lasted a few months around the time it got cold outside. Mm-hmm. Me and my sister, at that point, we reconnected, and she was going to a church. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, well, maybe I need, like, maybe I need to, you know, get back into the church or something because this is just um, too much. And um, her pastor and his wife uh, agreed to take us in, um, which was very nice for them to do. They had more than enough space for us to be there. So um, we had the basement and they had the other two levels of the house. And um, it was a nice gesture, uh, but that ended up being not so awesome either. Um, I can't really explain that situation, but it did become mentally spiritually, emotionally, and physically abusive. Hmm. Um, it, it's, how can I say it? I, I'm not going to say that they had bad intentions. I do think that they came from a place of wanting to help. It was toxic. And it did more harm than good, especially me coming out of a situation that I was in, being in survival mode, I'm not knowing what's going on with me to being into a situation to where I'm being told everything that's wrong about me, where somebody literally sits you down and sits across from you and says, these are all of your flaws. This is exactly what's wrong with you. You'll never have anything. You'll only be around people that have things. And just mentally sit there in your face and tear you down and tell you everything that's wrong with you in a time where you don't even know who you are anymore. Yeah. You know, people, you know, teasing you or picking on you or hitting you or punching you and really unnecessarily. So that situation was very, very, very toxic. But surprisingly enough, that's how I found out about, at that time, it was called the Alternative House, a.k.a. Second Story. Um, I was there for about a year before I found out about you guys. Wow, you were there for a long time. Yeah, I was there for a long time. So she, how did you hear about Second Story from them? She had a non-profit. Even though it was a toxic situation, they're not terrible people. I think that they have good hearts and they had good intentions, but they made bad decisions or handled situations poorly. But she called me into her office and she's like, hey, um, Kelsey, uh, I found out about this new program Um or something like that. She told me about the new program. And so I looked into it and I took it to, um, I, I was working with Fairfax County. Uh, I don't even know the name of the organization, but it's in Fairfax County where they'll meet with you every week. You have a caseworker and you guys talk about your goals and they help you meet your goals and talk about going back to school and talking about how to get a job and help you get resources from the government mm-hmm. that you might need. And so I met with my caseworker. I was like, hey, um, I heard about this program. Can you look into this for me? And so we both sat at the computer and we looked into it. And we were like, oh, no, these are for, you know, homeless teenagers. But I think there was a tab that said homeless youth initiative. I think it was brand spanking new. And it kind of outlined the guidelines of the program. And we called anyway just to see if I qualified and I did. And thank God that helped me get out of the situation that I was in and allowed me to find a roommate that I stayed with. And I was able also within that time to find a very stable job. Mm. Um, So that's how I entered into you guys' program. It taught me a lot. The little classes, I know a lot of people hated going to the the monthly classes, but I actually looked forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, group therapy. Mm -hmm. You looked forward to it. Okay. 
that's all I really wanted was like not a hand out, but a hand up. I, I yeah. saw this program as a way for me to, okay, okay, I can rebuild myself. Okay, I can find myself. Have somebody helping me, you know, afford housing, which is number one. Like if you don't have housing, I don't think people understand like being homeless is not easy. I'm pretty sure a lot of us work jobs or we go to school. Imagine at the end of your shift being tired and frustrated and sitting in a car and like, well, this is home. Like I have nowhere to lay back. I have nowhere to turn on the TV. I have nowhere to take a, you know, a nice shower. Mm-hmm. I have nowhere to cook dinner. Um, I have no bed. Like that's not easy to deal with. Being homeless sucks. Having a sense of home, I think, is really good for your mental health. Absolutely. So, yeah. Having you guys help me with that and cover that, it gave me like a breath of fresh air. Like, uh, finally, stability. It's been like a year and a half or maybe two years I've been in the area, and finally, like, I can take a breath. Okay, well, let me find a good job so that I can create, you know, I can get money to, to build myself up. One thing that really helped me was uh, like the budgeting classes because. I think a lot of people that were in my age range, like the 18 to 20, 18 to 21, we think, okay, if I go to work, I make $1,200. My rent is $1,100. I can afford that place. (laughs) 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 Like, I can, that's in my budget. That's in my budget. Like, I have the money. I have a job. I can, I can afford $1,100 on a $1,200, you know, month income. And alternative house. Uh, definitely taught you, like, no, the living expenses shouldn't be, like, one-third your income. And also having people to talk to if, you know, I was fed up or stressed out about something, I could call people. I liked how I could go to them and ask ask them for things, like, and they're like, okay, well, yes, absolutely. And so to, to have that option as well, because you know, even though I was getting help with my rent, I remember I was living off of about ten dollars a week of food Whoa. budget. Uh huh, food budget, and that was actually like it actually wasn't that bad. I would go around the corner to Dollar Tree, the Dollar Tree that has the grocery section, and I would buy a loaf of bread. I would buy like two cartons of eggs. I would buy like some smoked sausages, some ha- hash browns, maybe like some. Um, and things out of the can aisle. Like, I made it work. I made the $10 work. So that's what I would eat every single day. Um, yeah, stuff from Dollar Tree. I would buy a lot of popcorn. Popcorn to fill you up and it's cheap. I aged out of the prog- the program really quickly. Mm-hmm. So I loved when I aged out of the program how they gave me the money. I think I had maybe a grand uh, saved up. Maybe I had more. So when I got that that money, I was super excited. The money that I saved through you guys' program. Yeah. Well, we'll require youth to save. I think it's 40% of their income or something like that. Put it in an mm-hmm. escrow account and then give it back. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And, yeah, I was so excited. And then actually when I aged out, I remember my um, caseworker, Antonia. So, so weird. The time that I aged out, I actually moved to a better place. That I could afford on my own. So I moved to, uh, with a roommate, to a two-bedroom, two-bedroom, really nice townhouse in Oakland. And my uh, face worker came over just to look around. And she gave me my check. And I remember telling her, like, I'm going to never 
ever be in this situation again. Like, I promise you, I will never be this poor again. I will never go backwards again. <laughs> and I remember her smiling. And I was like, I, I promise you, I'm, I'm going to do better for myself. Hmm. And you have. <laughs> yes. After that, um, after that, actually, what was really new to the area was Uber and Lyft. Mm-hmm. was really new, like it was brand spanking new. Yeah. And so while I was working the job that I had been working all this time, when I was in ter- in alternative house, I also went, rented a car, and I started to do Uber. And I mean, once you mm. like, nobody knew about it. It was like an underground society. <laughs> and it was, it was just like this super cool, it was like so fresh and so new. And mm. especially when people see that you're a woman, like, wow, you're a lady. Uh, like, yes, I'm a lady. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, how did you get started? Or what do you think about the company? Oh, this mm-hmm. is so awesome. I don't want to call a cab out here to Vienna. And mm-hmm. it was just... <laughs> Really new, but the, the great thing about it is that it paid well. I saved up enough money to where I bought a brand new car outright. Wow. And then I moved to the place that I am now, this little condo um, in Alexandria, about 15 minutes away from D.C. And I've been here hmm. ever since. And I switched back and forth between Uber and Lyft and ride sharing until it got oversaturated and they started dropping the rates and the pay just was horrible. So I quit. And I started um, my first company, which was a home organizing company that uh, did it did well. I had a lot of clients and it did even better right before COVID hit. I had that company all the way until right before COVID hit. And right before COVID hit, that's actually when my company started to take off. We had bigger accounts. We had people, you know, paying us up front to be on the waiting list. We had, um, I had hired four new employees. And we were rocking and rolling every single day we had work. And until COVID hit. <laughs> and that hit out of the blue. Absolutely out of the blue to the point where I was like, I don't know if my company is going to make it out of this. Um, and then I had to start refunding the people that money back for spots that they paid for already. And so I was paying out to have to shut down. I had to let go of these new people that I hired. They don't know how they're going to feed their family. And I'm like, well, I don't even know how I'm going to feed myself now. Um, so I don't even know, like, if we're going to be alive in a few months at that point. So <laughs> I had to shut down operations. And I went through... Um, a serious bout of depression yeah. because I saw everything that I built just crumbling, just all that time, all of that effort, all of that networking and marketing and, you know, money that I put behind it. Yeah. Having to completely just put the lock on it. Yeah. And shut it down. So I was depressed for a while until I told myself, like, listen, you picked yourself up so many times. Like, stop it. Get up. You got to figure out a way to um, not only make money, but this is a perfect time to help people. Hmm. And so I really thought about it. Like, I know how it feels to have a business and to be uncertain on whether you'll ever open again, to be uncertain whether people want to book you again or feel comfortable with you around them or, hmm. you know, be comfortable with you on their houses. Like, that is a horrible feeling to be a small business and right. not know decided what we would do is we would help um, small businesses reopen the doors and make their customers feel safe to return 
by not only cleaning but disinfecting their facility. And we found a way um, out of a lot of research that I did. <laughs> um, I found a way to not only disinfect their facility, but I found a way to extend the disinfection results. So that was really great. I, I felt really great. Like, wow, I have this idea and I have this system that will help people reopen, reopen safely, um, you know, keep their employees safe, keep their customers safe. And um, yeah, so it was absolutely great having a purpose. Well, and it's really impressive that after taking such a hit, you were able to be really innovative, look at what the needs were on the market and just jump back into action. That's really impressive. I want to talk a little bit more about some of your like your healing process following some of this trauma and your experience being homeless because I know that you probably have a really specific insight on that, a unique insight on that. First of all, how did you work through some of that trauma following this situation with your ex-boyfriend in the house? What did that look like for you? It took me a while. I went and saw a therapist, and I had to um, to talk about it. I realize now that certain issues that I have is because of that, especially trust issues. Like, um, I have serious trust issues. Um, I, I really don't believe anybody, um, even in business, and that can be very toxic. But I have gotten a lot better, and that's through therapy. Yeah. Also, a lot of self-meditation. Um, I have to ask myself questions and, you know, read books to try to get over it or how to get over certain character flaws that I have now. But um, that's definitely something that I still struggle with and probably will for a while. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. I mean, I'm really thankful that you're able to pursue some support for that, but I think it's also true that that's not the kind of thing that just goes away. I think it, unfortunately, a lot of the time sticks with you. I actually acquired an addiction hmm. through all of that that I didn't even know that I had. And that's actually a food addiction. Yes, I acquired a food addiction through all of that. Yes, I would eat my emotions. Yeah. And I didn't even know that that was, uh, at that time, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I just felt like, oh, well, I'm bored. But, yeah. oh my gosh, I actually start to go into myself and realize, well, the reason why you're eating is because you feel anxious, you feel out of control, mm. you feel stressed out. So yeah. I realized, at this point, it doesn't matter what emotion I feel, whether I'm happy, sad, nervous, anxious, I eat, even mm-hmm. if I'm not hungry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it helps me cope with my emotions. And I realize that I don't have a healthy way to cope with my emotions. They're just all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I definitely do a lot of meditating and mm-hmm. do a lot of self-reflection, like, okay, what are you feeling? Mm-hmm. How does this make me feel? Okay, well, let's figure out a way to healthily deal with this emotion that you're feeling. Yeah. Um, I recently joined um, Overeaters Anonymous and oh, hearing a lot great. of those people's stories. Yeah, yeah, hearing a lot of those people's stories and methods have helped me as well. I think a huge step is the fact that you're able to acknowledge it. Yes. I'm also wondering, in this experience with homelessness, what was that like for you as a young person? Did you know about some services like Second Stories? Um, what is that? What is that scene like for someone in your position at that time? No, I knew of nothing like Second Story. 
like I told you at that point, I so desperately, all I wanted was someone to help me. I didn't want a hand out. I wanted just somebody to give me, just give me one stepping stone and just let me pull myself out of this deep abyss right now. And because I was in that weird age, age range between 18 to 20 or 21, there wasn't a lot of programs out there for me. It was just a thing within our age group, that really weird age group where, okay, well, you don't have any family up here or whatever the case may be, or you're working a job, but the job doesn't make you enough money to qualify for a place because even though you're making $1,200 a month, if you go apply for a place, it's going to be 1200 and then you have to make three times the rent. And I remember thinking, like, I will never make three times the rent. Like, that's yeah. so much money. That's like $50,000. Like, I'm just... 20 years old and I'm at this top better college. I don't have $50,000. It's such a challenging age group. Yes. Yeah. And so people would, you know, you would ride together. You guys would, you know, sleep on people's couches together. You guys would sleep in people's basements together. Uh, there's even been times where people would like get tents and they would just sleep uh, next to the overpasses, like in the woods, to, to a gas station. So if you have to go to the bathroom, you just walk over to the gas station. Like it was like that serious to where people were actually, you know, sleeping in tents and then waking up in the morning and going to work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it totally happens. And I've, I mentioned this to you before, but it's this challenging balance between we do a lot of efforts to reach out to the community and make our services known but a lot of those traditional channels like school or a doctor's office or something like that that we can leverage are just not being accessed by that age group. They're out of school. They're totally disconnected. We've actually talked to someone else on this podcast before about this age range. And there are these names for this age range called disconnected youth or opportunity youth. And even though we're working on reaching out, because they're so disconnected, sometimes it's just really hard to make clear that there are options available for them. It's very hidden. It's a very hidden population of young people. And then that keeps them from accessing support. And at the same time, we know that there are so many more youth out there and we have limited capacity in terms of who we can support. We support as many youth as possible with the funding that we have. So it's just it's a big need. And I don't think that there are easy answers. I'm glad that you were able to get the support that you were able to find out about us, but there is a much bigger picture as well. Yeah. I would have never found out about you guys because even my caseworker for Fairfax County, she had never even heard of you guys. So we were looking into it together, but I definitely think that it's so important for people in that age group to have some type of outlet because what I'm telling you being in that situation is not easy. Mentally, mm -hmm. emotionally, it gets to a point where you get desperate. So I do know a yeah. lot of people that, you know, they would get strung out on drugs. Yeah. Um, because they just it's it's like you you it's like a, a feeling of hopelessness. Like there's nothing you can really do. You'll start to rob people. I know some people that turn to prostitution because it's an easy way to make yeah. money. Yeah. Uh, you can make it's a few hundred dollars a night and at least you can yeah. afford a hotel room. Even though you don't have, you know, validated income to get a, a place, at least you can get a hotel room. So, like, there, there's a lot of people in that age group that start to get into other things because they feel so desperate. And then once you go to jail for those things, 
Or if you end up getting a felony, it's going to be an even bigger problem to get thrown into the system. Yeah, it's really interesting. A lot more research is being done showing that homelessness is such a linchpin for all of these other challenges and that if young people become housed, it really prevents them from a lot of those risky situations that they could find themselves in. And it's because of that desperation. They just, there there aren't other options. And so these options seem better than the alternative. See, that's, that's very true because now that I'm thinking back, when people find out that you're homeless, I've had people that extended their home to me, like, okay, well, you can sleep on my couch. Okay, well, we have an extra room, but you have to do this sexual favor for me. Yeah. You have to do this for me. You have to do that for me. And a lot of people yeah. will take it. Yeah. I mean, you're desperate. You're, yeah. Because, okay, I can say that I'm lucky that I had a car, but most of the people I hung out with did not have a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're walking everywhere. And that, yeah. that that's that's another thing. I'm like, you're asleep, but you don't have any place to sleep. At least I had... Some place that I could just roll up, roll up in the ball, and go to sleep. But there, there, there is that issue when it comes to sexual exploitation, like you said, because I even got those offers. Oh, well, I'll give you some money if you sleep with me. I mean, desperate people do desperate things. Yes, what a what a simple but perfect way of saying that. Desperate people do desperate things, and like you were saying, there's often this snowball. We have spoken with youth as well who've been desperate they've committed some kind of crime a lot of times what we hear about is you know petty theft they're stealing from the cash register at work or something like that because they're so desperate and then they have that on their record and it's that much harder to find a place to live to get a job and it just it really it snowballs like you said and what year did you graduate from the program do you remember 2014 2014 Because I moved in this place in Alex in 2015, so it was 2014. Okay. Yeah, it was at the time called the Homeless Youth Initiative, and now it's Second Story for Homeless Youth. I believe that began in 2014, so you would have been one of the earliest youth to access that program. And thankfully, in the, you know, six, seven years since then, we have gotten a lot more relationships with the community. Of course, a new program is harder for people to know about, but there is definitely still a huge gap in terms of people in the community knowing about us, people in the community knowing that they can refer to us. A lot of community partners know about us now, but you even, I would say, were more connected than a lot of the youth that we know because you had this Fairfax County case manager, and a lot of youth don't, and they don't know who they can call. There's still a lot, a lot of work to be done, I think, in terms of awareness raising and meeting the needs of that group of young people. One reason why I reached out to you guys was I, I ran into you on Instagram. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These people helped me so much. And I, just, <laughs> I really want to say it was definitely you guys that mm-hmm. gave me that square to be able to help myself. And I just, I don't know where I, I I really have no idea where I would be if mm-hmm. I did not find this program because I was in such a dark, mm-hmm. hopeless place. Like everywhere that you're pulling, there's nothing there for you. I don't know where I would be. I don't know how desperate I would have become. I don't know what I would have done to try to find a way to get out of the situation that I was in. 
And so you guys as programs, helping me to save money, helping me to pay my rent, giving me um, things that I need, and also not just that, but teaching me lessons, mm-hmm. going through classes, having somebody there that I can talk to, having caseworkers, that really helped me to see the bigger picture, you know, outside of the small box that I was in. It helped me to see above and beyond, like, okay, well, they're helping me here. Okay, well, I can finally think about me. I can think about my future, not my present. I don't have to just think in survival mode. I can think about what I want to do after this program. Absolutely. I really feel like it's an honor for us to be able to support youth. I mean, you're not really, you're a young person still, but you're not, I guess not in the demographic we call a youth anymore, but it's really an honor to be able to do that. And I know that the team really finds it rewarding to work with youth who are in that kind of position in terms of watching them grow, because like you've been saying this whole time, that sense of safety and stability is really life-changing. Like, I really am a firm believer, and we all are at Second Story, that we're not the ones who do the the saving. We're not the ones who do the work. We just are able to, I think, provide that key element, which is safety and stability. And then the youth in the program, I think, find it in themselves to be able to be the person that they were meant to be, which I think is very reflective through your story. Um, but being able to bear witness to that, I think, is really special. And I know that it means a lot to the people who work at Second Story to be able to watch that. And then also to hear from youth like you so many years later that you're doing well. That's so rewarding for us. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I definitely hope that everyone that comes into the program, if I would give one piece of advice, is to take full advantage. Use this time to reflect. Use this time to heal. And use this time to refocus on what you really want to do, what you really want to be, why you have this the safety that around you, use it all. Every single resource that they, that they give you, every class, if they offer you something, take it. Uh, if they offer, you know, for a shoulder to cry on, take it. Use this time to rebuild yourself into focus. So when you age out, you already have a clear goal as to what you want to do and how you're going to survive. Um, I mean, how you're not just going to survive, but how you're going to thrive outside of a second story. Well, Kelsey, thank you so much. I really feel like we got the opportunity to not only hear your story, which is really special, but also to hear a unique view on some of the issues from someone who's been really in it. Thanks so much for for your time and for being willing to talk. I really appreciate it for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. I will never forget you guys' program. I will never, ever, ever forget Thank you so much for listening to season four of Second Stories. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we would be so thankful if you rated us and left us a review. It has been our honor to share each of these conversations, and we're so thankful to each and every one of you for seeing the value in them as well, for listening and sharing and helping bring hope and healing to the light. Second Stories is created and produced by Second Story with support from Franklin Vaughn. Second Story is a nonprofit based in Northern Virginia that works to provide safe havens and opportunities to grow and thrive to youth in crisis and their families. 
if you've been inspired by this season. We hope you'll join us for more inspirational stories and important conversations at our Beacon of Hope virtual fundraiser on October 26th. You can learn more and register at the URL in the show notes. More than anything, thank you for listening.